Coughing. Hello. I have to cough now. The coughing is um, every okay. Everybody, all listeners at home, give a cough. Just a gentle cough. <clears throat> Clear your throat. We're about to record Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary, our Kim Stanley Robinson uh, commentary podcast. Oh, commentary. That's yeah. right. Read along commentary podcast. Um, with me, Matt. And me, Hillary. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> twenty three twelve. You all know 12. it. And we're. Oh wait. Um, yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say I wanted to. Um, I I wanted to apologize to the person who we spoiled part of Shaman for. <laughs> right. Um, because we, I don't, I don't know what episode we were we started talking about Shaman, and I do feel like although. I think both of us are not people who have that kind of relationship to reading where we get upset by knowing something about the plot before we read it. Um, and, and we also, I feel like the way that we've talked on this podcast, like, is just, you know, we just like can't have the conversations that we have without revealing, without revealing plot points. Um, but it is true that we often go back to a book that we've talked about before where we feel like we worked out some kind of idea and then we use that to reflect on what we're reading now. And I think that's useful and I wouldn't not want to do that. Um, but it does, but I am sorry that we like do that indiscriminately enough that that has like made some people feel like we have, you know, ruined things about books they haven't read yet. So at least maybe I will just try to be better about like saying, oh, I want to say a thing about something that happened in this book. And then, you know, you could like fast forward or whatever. I'm sure people fast forward to the things we're doing all the time. <laughs> I, the time. I, think anyway. they, I think they either fast forward or just stop listening and turn it off and go to sleep or get on with their lives. Hopefully. I hope they do that. Or just let it keep playing while they sleep. You That's know. true too. Well, I mean, yeah, they probably don't. 90% of podcast listening is just sound washing, washing over you, right? While you play video games or do dishes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Waves uh, on the beach. Yeah. Especially at this point in our, in the progression of the podcast, where I think we might be over halfway through his oove. Oove? Um, his oove. <laughs> um, his egg. Enough. <laughs> his oof. His oof. Uh, I think half at this point as we're halfway through his his works, um, yeah. we're probably and we and you're right. Like the way that we've been reading is sort of building this kind of. I mean, we ought to be writing a book about it or something, and maybe yeah. we one day will. But creating not obviously the KSR universe because that doesn't exist as such. But like <clears> the <throat> ideas resonate and the events resonate and the characters resonate throughout the books. So you see these things reappear again and again. Yeah. And, some type, some events that always that do, you know, tend to happen in his books, like a major character dies, um, where whether it be in the middle of a book, at the be very beginning of the book, as it happens here, or like sort of at the end of the book or wherever, like 
a major character death like always happens in a KSR uh, book. And, yeah. you know, that that's, um, you know, that's an important uh, event to kind of mark and then compare to other moments and why it happened and who this character was and and what the resonance and, and fallout of it is. So that's one example, right? Um, but I think that those types of like resonances are just going to continue to compound as we now that we're again, like halfway through, I, th I think we're roughly halfway through his books. Those are going to like continue to compound and we're going to continue to see like mirror instances and resonances yeah, and yeah. explore those um, as we move through uh, the rest of them. And, and it's only, so it'll only be more, the connections and patterns will only become more and more, um, you know, complex, if not clear, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in some ways I feel like I mean, whatever. I don't know how many years this would be in the future. Um, and God knows if we'll even still have podcasts. But I mean, I do kind of feel like obviously the way that we would end this podcast is having gotten through all of the books, just returning to the Mars trilogy. Because right. at least in my, I mean, you know, like I think I tend to be a very like recursive thinker, you know, like um, things do sort of add up for me, but I also like return to earlier moments and find them to be different than they were before. And a lot from at least my own experience of this, besides the experience of like interacting with people who listen to us, part of my experience is, it's, is it as if you and I are just like still working through the questions that the Mars books raise? Um, and like that, I mean that in like a really good way. Like, I love that. I mean, that's right. like, you know, um, that's really exciting, but I do feel like I don't want to be, you know, like, I don't want to be a dick about people's like preferences for, you know, whatever people's preferences for like what is spoiled or unspoiled in something. So I am, I am also sorry that that was like, you know, yeah. whatever, that that was a thing. And probably that yeah. person is not actually listening to this because they probably hate us now, but anyway, they probably found a better Kim Stanley Robinson podcast to listen to. Yeah, that's right. One of our rivals, one well, of our probably, more professional rivals. <laughs> yeah. They like uh Chapo trap house or, uh, <laughs> which had a really good, did you listen to that in interview? They interviewed him last week. No, I know. Uh, uh, what's their names? Will and Matt. Matt, Matt and Will, another Matt, and Will. Matt. another Chomp Matt. Yeah, chomping my flavor, chomping my flavor <laughs> in so many ways. Stealing my, stealing my gimmick, being Matt, being called Matt, having a beard, and talking to Kim Stanley Robinson. That's it's my true. whole thing. Those are your things. Those are your things. I mean, I have to say, like, uh, although I, I enjoy listening to that Matt talk sometimes, I would vastly rather listen to you talk on oh. on on any subject. What? Absolutely. All of our listeners would disagree with that, but, uh, <laughs> but that was a good interview. And um, I think the dig, Daniel uh, Aldana Cohen, author of A Planet to Win, co-author of A Planet to Win. Mm -hmm. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, I believe we'll be interviewing Stan for the dig coming up. I think probably, hopefully this week, I'm really looking forward to listening yeah. to it. So yeah, I think that'll be really great. For I, all of our yeah. listeners, look out for that. I gotta say like, uh, you know, I, my feeling was from our communications with Stan that he really wanted to take a break from being, um, you know, what the, the voice of like, uh, climate yeah, disaster I, and man, he's not taking a break at all. It seems like he's not allowed to, because there are like the book ministry for the future is still gaining traction and readers and 
more and more pe people are, there's still think pieces coming out about it in like major publications. Yeah. I know that he'll be in Europe for what, for COP or yeah. for yeah. In, like coming up soon. And so that's only going to increase his exposure. Like I, you know, I, I, I feel for him in that I know he would rather be um, not doing so much press still probably yeah. like a year after the book came out. Um, but I also like, am really grateful to him because he is a world-class science communicator who also happens to be a devoted socialist and a utopian. So yeah, what there's no better person to be out there talking about these ideas right now. Um, and sort of taking on that like Carl Sagan role or whatever, <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke, whoever like the Pat, you know, there's, <clears throat> I think he yeah. mentioned it in one of his recent interviews where it's like every mm -hmm. generation has their kind of like sci-fi guru who's going to come out and like popularize ideas or whatever. And I guess it's turned out to, he's, I guess it's turned out to be me him stand yeah yeah um, <laughs> you not me please <laughs> although hey if hey, it pays not, i'll do hey, it why not i'll do it you got the beard um, <laughs> i've got the beard you know uh whatever um so anyway he's very good at it i'm glad yeah. I'm gr and grateful that he that he is um still doing it and from a left perspective too yeah yeah absolutely i think it's like you know one i feel like he must be exhausted and yeah. um there must be something that's just like really hard about, um, I don't know, about the fe the feeling that you have to like turn this stuff that is incredibly complex and so much of your work is about like acknowledging complexity that you have to turn it into kind of a spiel that you can like, you know, work through because that's what people want or that's what people get. Um, and it's also, it's just like, it's hard thinking about it to think that like, oh, so, so we, I don't know who this we is, but you know, just like a lot of people in the world are still at this stage of, or maybe just like the media, you know, are still at this stage of thinking about like, um, you know, the climate disaster that we're living in as something that you like need to have, like um, this intelligent person who can talk well, come on and talk about, you know, like, it's like, we're, you know, like this is still where we're at, you know, like <laughs> well, laying that, that out the problem. Well, exactly, that, and that, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where each generation has the science communicator. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson would be another example, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like a celebrity scientist out in the world, who the media can like call for all their needs, right? And but that's part of, but I mean, that's a huge problem with our media ecosphere or our like our information sphere right that is controlled by capital again it's like a capital problem i think because if you have that one person who you can turn to and give all the answers to then you can like have that guy on your show yep and then say goodbye and like not talk to them for like months or years yeah and whereas you know obviously there are thousands of professors and activists and people out there who could also, and communicators who could speak commun uh, intelligently about these problems and keep it, keep it in, you know, in in sight longer, and uh, and and more, you know, keep keep it keep a light on it uh, longer and more intensely, and um, and uh, and would expose the fact that there are like lots and lots of people who are not only deeply concerned but deeply knowledgeable about this. We don't need to keep being taught that like 
fossil fuels are like fueling the climate <laughs> climate crisis. Like if you don't, like everyone must know that by now, yeah. but yeah, yeah. there's a way in which the media operates in such a way as to tell people that they need to know it in a way that makes them think that they don't already know it and therefore keep them in this state of ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it makes me think yeah. about like science um, teaching and like science education today where it's like, in like the turn of the 20th century, there was the theory of relativity came out and people were like, what the fuck is this? Like, you're telling me that time is relative. That doesn't make any sense. There were decades of science communication about that and science education, and it became part of the curriculum. Maybe not everybody understands it perfectly, but you know, it became something that people understood. There were popular texts about it today. Like, I don't think like the quant, like quantum, uh, physics, quantum physics <laughs> is like taught in the same way or in the same kind of like uh, is part of the shared kind of language of uh, or knowledge of how we understand the world. And like, there's some fundamental problem with that. I think like it didn't become popularized in the same way that relativity did. You know what I mean? I, I, that's just my impression. And I think the same kind of thing is happening with climate change. And I think a lot of that has to do with the kind of consol media consolidation and monopolization that has happened in terms of like how information gets disseminated and who decides what information is gonna get disseminated at one time. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I do think like, um, you know, it raises this kind of, it raises this sort of problem about like, um, uh, like on the one hand, this kind of like representation problem that like, mm. so the way that like mm. the, you know, the way that just like quote marks around the media mm -hmm. works is that if you, you know, just think of like the New York Times as like fucking debased, like opinion page or whatever, you know, like what, what's, but what justifies that? Well, it's this idea that you just need like this one column written by whoever who in themselves are supposed to have some kind of representative status. And that like represents the problem. And, you know, maybe, maybe if it's a big problem, there are two columns, one from one perspective and one from another, right? Right. You have the, like the sort of like, you know, oh, well, let's make this interview with Kim Stanley Robinson that then serves this representative function, right? right? I mean, it, both in that he is supposed to like represent both the, the crisis and like an intelligent, um, you know, uh, like way to be hopeful about it, right? But then it's also like, oh, so once you've done that, then you're done, right? It's right. just like, that's, you just like needed to represent it, right? right. Um, and then the other part of that is, of course, like, and this this is the part that seems like, you know, <clears throat> at best, like, kind of ironic to me is that it it seems like, you know, Stan's novels are all about not only that, you know, these the idea that human beings have the capacity to work together through difference, through debate, through disagreement, like even through radical difference of, of sort of like tactics. Um, but also that they are already doing that, you know, and part of what gets really obscured, I think, is that like, you know, there are people all over the world, you know, most of whom are probably not intellectuals or at least not, you know, official intellectuals of any kind who are actually doing work that matters, you know, that can be, you know, local, it can be like, 
both like material and like symbolic resistance, right? Like as in like the water protectors, for example, um, that stretches across, you know, national boundaries, right? That, that, that actually is happening, you know? And then that remains like not only sort of like invisible in like official sort of like discourse, right? You know, like hidden, um, but when that stuff is made visible, like, you know, it's made visible because like, um, you know, people who are at Standing Rock are being served like eight year prison terms, right? Like, so, right. you know, that there's a real like, um, yeah, you both have this kind of like, and I think that this is always something like this, I think is, you know, I think we talked in ministry about the way in which some of that sense of like what's already happening or that people are already doing this work feels like it gets kind of pushed to the side, at least in, in ministry, or at least in the ways that people have like sort of thought about ministry. Um, but nonetheless, that's always there in what Stan is writing, right? That like, you know, the work already is happening and there already mm -hmm. are people who are doing a thing that like seems almost unimaginable from another kind of position. And right. then that just like disappears when it becomes just this discursive formation, which is not to say, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, he's brilliant at talking about this stuff and like, and extraordinarily clear and yeah. like also extremely patient with, with, with stupidity, at least publicly. <laughs> he responds so well to questions that are like not very smart or like off center or whatever. Like, like he'll just be like, I don't think that's right. And then he'll just correct them very gently. And it's like, you know, or just say, I, I disagree with that. He's very good at that. And like yeah. so much again of what goes on in the media too, is these people are coached and they're communications professionals so that everything is scripted anyway. Like, especially if you see an interview mm -hmm. on mainstream television or cable television, everything is not scripted, but like beat laid out by beats. And so they're always agreeing with each other or, you know, disagreeing in a very predictable way. And, you know, they set up things to uh, have big, like controversial moments that will play well on Twitter. And, um, you know, Stan is just very good about having a genuine conversation and not yeah. follow, yeah. not immediately accepting the premise of the person who's asking the question, but actually pushing back on that premise and redirecting it into a more focused and like clear uh, direction or whatever. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. Speaking well, of I hope, having, Robinson, I hope he's having some fun too. I'm sure he's having a blast. Yeah. I mean, he's a guy who just, you know, enjoys life. I think uh, <laughs> for the most part, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> My impression of him is that he, he likes being alive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's always I better mean, when you get that impression of a person then when you get the impression that this is a person who does not like being alive. Yeah. The, the impression that I give most people. So, <laughs> I mean, he's a guy who enjoys weeding his garden. You know what I mean? So, Hey man, it's one of the great pleasures. It, you know, I wish I had a garden to weed. Speaking of skin, Stanley Robinson, we got this book here, 2030, oh. 2312. <laughs> 2312. <laughs> 2312. Um, we are right now where we left off uh, before lists seven. So we just mm -hmm. finished. Oh my gosh. Swan and the inspector. Yeah. So list seven. And then we're going to try to talk about through the first quantum walk. Yeah. And hopefully we won't, we're going to try dear listener, not to go chapter by chapter like we have been doing, because that does seem to 
slow down and drag out the, um, you know, the pace of reading and an analysis. Not that that's not pleasurable, extraordinarily, extraordinarily pleasurable to discuss this book with my dear friend, Hillary, uh, at length. Yeah. But also we understand that you have certain demands on your time. Many other podcasts to listen to. <laughs> We know, we know you have your choice of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> now it's the part of the airline flight where we thank them for, for flying exactly. Delta. We thank them after they're already like strapped into their seats, just like praying we don't fucking crash the plane. <laughs> also like for the flight that was the cheapest that was leaving on the day that I needed exactly. it to leave at the time exactly. I needed it to leave. Oh, anyway. anyway, all right, enough yeah. fun. Enough fun, let's get down to this. So list seven is a list from the Journal of Space Accidents. It just, it, uh, it's both, uh, it's a little hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, it, you know, and it, it, it's, you know, part of one of the big theme, themes, obviously, that we tend to pick out from this novel, but all his novels is like that sense of um, intention and versus accident. And here it's like a list of yeah. space accidents that have vastly different, um, valences of accident versus intention, right? So bad luck, bad luck. You know, there's a nice little pun there, um, but it's also like, what is the line between having a bad luck and a bad and just having bad luck? You know, is is, is that something that's um, measurable? You know, in any way, or is there anything you could have done to change those things? Yeah. Uh, metal fatigue versus mental fatigue, right? Um, accidental critical mass. So it, like a lot of these things bear the question or, or uh, uh, beg the question, right? Like um, uh, sudden air loss. I mean, how is that not bad luck? You know, what okay, caused, right. what right. is the cause of that? Right. Um, so yeah, it, it's a fun, yeah, it's a hilarious little list. Well, and so it's a nice kind of transition because we just, so with the, you know, with the swan and the inspector, chapter which is the one that ends right. with um or almost ends with with swan meeting meeting the strange silly young people who are claiming at least to be cubes um uh um you know we have this you know we're like getting closer to the mystery um but but there is also this sort of like you know um so that chapter ends um with the inspector saying why are the cubes changing right, right. I mean, so this kind of, so the question about like, you know, intent, you know, intentionality, where the intentionality would be coming from, which are questions that are linked to the questions about will that I think that we talked about last time, you know, whether like um, an artificial person, like a cube could have intent or intentionality um, is being changed by programming or whatever it may be, or is just changing like through some kind of like quasi evolutionary process, all of those kinds of questions. Then we have this kind of like little miniature list seven, where, as you were saying, we get like contingency and chance and the kind of versus, versus like deliberateness and the sort of blurriness there, which then also I think leads us into extract seven, right. where we get this, this um, periodization system, which um, produced by someone named Charlotte Shortback. Um, uh, I feel like there are a lot of Charlottes in, mm -hmm. uh, in Stan's um, novels, um, uh, which is supposed to like give us a sort of like, 
uh, timeline out of or timeline through what is jokingly referred to as the long postmodern. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there, you know, all of these questions about like whether these historical changes are, um, you know, like uh, whether periodize whether periods mark something like. Um, uh, what, like total change and transformation or long continuities, right? Which, you know, the sort of balance between the, uh, you know, the residual and the emergent, how you know what the emergent is, all of those are also questions that like in the, in the sort of like retrospect depend on how much, where you sort of think something like uh, intent or contingency lie or how much they matter, right? So we're kind of on this territory of like, you know, um, still kind of like uncertainty around like how to solve a problem, how to answer a question, how to know what matters. That section, which maybe we want to talk more about, ends with, um, on my page 279, your page, I'm sure like 495. No, no, uh, you're way ahead of me. I'm behind, oh, I'm, I'm, two, I'm 247. So you're, yeah. Oh my God. Anyway, but what happened in 2312 suggests that the 24th century will mark a turn. And like, we still are in this mode of like, okay, what happened? What is happening in 2312? Right. right? Um, And that sort of those variants of those questions seem to me to like continue playing through this whole section of the novel. Um, And they link back to stuff that we talked about at the very beginning, right? Like, you know, is this a novel that revolves around like a mystery? It has a detective or perhaps multiple detectives. Um, Is it like a, is it a solvable mystery? Um, You know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, right? And like, what would it mean to like, and and is the mystery that's being investigated in fact, sort of like the central question of the, or a central question of the text at all. So well, I think that's and, a kind of interesting thematic thing at this point. And, and to whom is it mysterious as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah. There are other people who it's not mysterious mm-hmm. at all. The people who are behind it, it's not a mystery to them necessarily at all, if there is anybody behind right, it. Right, right. Is there but like it, organized intent behind it, right? Yeah. Right. And and so like the periodization is obviously so fascinating. Um, we have the dithering, the crisis, the turnaround, the accelerando, the retard, the balkanization, um, and then a potential like hyper balkanization. Um, but what's interesting too, so like obviously imposing any kind of periodizing system on a period on a swath of history is trying is on the one hand trying to read some kind of intention or some kind of pattern rather onto the past so that you can understand it better but then also it must be borne in mind that whoever is applying that pattern or like developing that pattern on the past has their own intentions somehow right so like that last sentence like what happened in 2312 suggests that the 24th century will mark a turn. This is an argument that's being made about right. history and the pattern of history and where it's going. And that's really fascinating too, because an argument has intention behind it. And to have intention behind that argument, what you would require some kind of philosophy. I mean, if you know, you know, Marx had a very clear idea of what the pattern of history was going to result in, capitalism was going to lead inevitably to communism um maybe or yeah (laughs) ideally maybe that's what marx thought well okay so that great because (laughs) he's obviously like willfully misinterpreted by many many followers of marx (laughs) to say to have said 
this is how, this was a program. We just have to run this program. Right. And the technology of economics and so sociology and politics will take care of itself, right? We'll take care, we'll run the program and we will end up in a kind of communist utopia. Obviously that didn't work, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm looking around, I don't think it worked. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, so, but there is this kind of, so anyway, like there's that given, there, there is that kind of both sides of the, of that sense of intentionality are um, in the reading out of a pattern of event, uh, reading into a, a set of events, a pattern, um, and making a case for that, um, uh, 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 yeah, as a kind of like um, whatever progression somehow, whether yeah. it be natural yeah. or what, you know, that we divide history up into these 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 epochs, and we can know something about those epochs, right? We can know something about them just by simply by saying, well, that thing happened during the Cold War, therefore it's this kind of event. That thing happened during the dithering, therefore it's this kind of event and it fits into those things. Whereas, so my point being, I guess, is like the reading of history and the writing of history are still also like intentional acts themselves in a certain way. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that seems exactly right. And here we we do see, at least in in Charlotte's periodization here, um, partic particularly after the um, beginning with the turnaround, we do see a sort of sense of like um, uh, technological change being positioned, at least in this account, as a kind of motor of history, right? Right. Um, uh, although at the same time, you know, it feels like that must be the driver. Although at the same time, we learn like that during the turnaround, the Mondragon Accord is signed, right? Which could, that could be a way that we thought rather right. that we could take that to be, um, you know, more of a mover than the, than the technology itself. I was also struck reading this, that like the dithering is also a, a periodization in ministry, right? That um, and maybe other places too. Yeah. So, and here it's 2005 to 2060, you know, um, just this kind of, and I mean, and this, this is the name of our moment, right? This mm -hmm. is like, this is the name, this is the name of the contemporary. And I think in ministry, right. The dithering uh, is right. I was just thinking about like, oh, it's funny to think that when this book came out, like there was like a little, there was more leeway, right. Yeah. You know, like, um, potentially up to 2060 to, to to before the crisis would hit and like that um yeah it's very strange to be living in relation to something where like you know uh what like perspective time is just like moving backwards at an increasingly <laughs> it's yeah. coming closer well, and closer to us i think right? in the, i think the dithering in ministry was was basically the 2020s or yeah. maybe even into the 2030s and what's yeah, like what's funny, fun, funny and interesting is that Stan in, in many of his interviews has been saying like, oh, I was actually my prediction of the future, which, you know, he never predict the future was way longer. Like I, I was, you know, now the UN is meeting and there may be a ministry for the future forming right now. So I actually the world may be moving faster than I thought it was going to move. Um which again is another kind of that um, idea for, you know, you don't want to predict the future, but you do uh, make certain judgments on the past based on patterns that you've seen, but those patterns are actively developing all around you so that your judgment has to be constantly 
um, adjusting to that. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and his books m map that really interestingly, yeah, right? That yeah. would be a great project um, for any graduate students out there to kind of like have like the different temporal maps of, of when he's, when he's sort of envisioning different things happening or whatever, right. um, uh, based on the possibilities of the present. Right. I mean, um, and that's, and that it's especially interesting. I mean, it's interesting to think about that for one thing, because like, there is something about like the way that, you know, the drivers of climate change work that in fact, that is something that speeds up. Right. Right. You know, like, yeah. um, you know, and, and that then also that that is like um, that becomes a question of the temporality of our lives. Right. As like. And so then the other thing I think it's interesting about that is like this is this is such a this is such a in some ways like this is a sci fi book that feels like the way people want. I mean, there are a lot of things about this book that I think do not really fit in with what people want from science fiction. I mean, and I mean that in like very good ways, mm -hmm. um, but it does do certain things that are things that I think sci-fi readers tend to want. And one of them is, Oh, it's the future. Right. And you know, it's the future because like, there's a, just like a whole lot, you know, basically there's like a whole lot of cool shit, most mm -hmm. of which is technological um, in one way or another that's, that's going on. Right. Um, but to like write a book that, you know, gives you that like future. Right. Um, but also still, but refuses to like, just accept that, like, that just is what the future is. Right. You know, like most of the time, like, um, uh, you know, to sign the future via like technological development, that's all the future is, right? right. Those, you know, you know, it's the future because like there are cybernetic organisms, right? Mm -hmm. um, whatever it may be, right? You know, it's the future because like the machines have taken over, um, right? But here, like this is a place where explicitly, like this is about history, right? But it's also about making the future itself a problem for us, which it does right at the end, mm -hmm. like raising the possibility, which is I think something that like Stan is interested in, that we might see certain continuations of feudalism, right. right? The the default moment before modernity, right? Before we enter into all of the stuff that is supposed to work in all, you know, like, um, you know. Like uh, clockwork. Right, exactly. But that that might still be with us, right? Yeah. You know, and we don't see here, um, you know, I, I think we don't mostly, although we we've talked a little bit about like, possibilities for thinking about this we don't mostly read this as a world that sort of you know or that that gives us like the signs of like um uh like an ongoing feudalism or revived feudalism or whatever i mean like there are sf futures that like do that like quite explicitly and that's not what's happening here but we also have that question about like the long continuance and that um you know, and why we might not see like the long, con why we might not see a long continuance instead to, um, instead be biased toward like understand change, like, um, uh, you know, in certain kinds of ways, like, you mm -hmm. know, there are these new kinds, oh, there are new things, here are new things that, that are just like clearly new, right? Right. And, um, 
and by privileging those new things that are clearly new, we, you know, turn away from the things that are old and still with us and that we can't, that we're still attached to, that we still have attachment toward and, and are desperately, and, and that are holding us back from the right. new, from the genuinely new. Um, and the ways that the genuinely, and that the, the things that seem new are really just recapitulations of the old very frequently. But the fact that the idea that we're both living in the long postmodern and the late feudal period. Uh. <laughs> and we're living in that time at the same time that those yeah. two temporalities occupy the same space time that we all are in is, you know, really interesting and really crucial, I think, for keep everybody to keep in mind to, because it affects your analysis of the present moment. Like it's both, they're both ways in which, you, okay, I'm living in the long postmodern that way. That means I'm living in the future. I'm living in the late feudal. That means I'm living in the past. Yep. They're both kind of ways of like situating yourself in the now, in the present, but also like ignoring the fact that you're just a person living on a planet, right? Like, I mean, they're 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 interpretive, they're they're hermeneutic structures and categories for understanding where you are. But at the same time, do they really tell you where you are? Do they tell you that you're in some place that you're not, whether it be the future or the past, rather than being in the present, like in the moment or something like that? And there is something about both of those. If if like that's a way to sort of like you know, if if that's a way to like characterize or at least point at features of a historical moment. Like um, there's a way in both the idea of the long postmodern and like the continuous feudal, um, which operate really differently, right? I mean, the long postmodern is about disorientation, like not being able to know where you are, not being able to make the cognitive map, um, you know, no possibility for the standpoint on totality, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's just like doing a little a super, super crude version of a, uh, a, a little Jameson. Um, um, but then the, the, like, you know, um, the idea of like a long feudal is like being caught in an absolutely like unmissable set of structures of power that are in fact run so deep that like they are, they feel like completely, almost completely natural to you, you know, um, as if nothing, as if there was no possibility for change. Right. And in some ways, both of those are kind of like stories about like, how to name a historical moment that are that don't think about like where change comes from, right? You know, like um, like the lock of you know, mm -hmm. as if what power was just inevitably was that it would take the sort of like form of like lord and serf, right? Right. Um, right. Or as if what it is to like um, you know. Um, live in the kind of like cultural whatever like cultural historical like proliferation we live in is of necessity to live in the in in like the delirium right, right. or you know um you know right like both of those in some ways avoid the question of like where it is that change comes from right they give yeah. us a kind of like an inevitability well and they, it, it mirrors our conversation about uh, conspiracy theory versus oh, yeah yeah so like like the late if you if you subscribe to the idea that we're in the late feudal then you're much more of a conspiracy theorist like you're prone <laughs> to that kind of conspiracy like it's the fixes in it's all coming there they all all they all meet on a on an island somewhere every year and they plan out what's going to happen versus the long postmodern is like pff, everything is contingent total chance we're yep. in complete chaos nobody has control over anything um, and of course, the truth has to lie somewhere in between, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hopefully, it's not one thing or another. Um, but yeah, so that's cool. Um, <laughs> 
and you know, like um, go, moving on to Iapetus, the um, the kind of things that we we continuously see in stand in these novels is that um, you know people do take action uh, in the face of both you know overwhelming power structures and also like a total unpredictability of what they will what will come of them. So like Iapetus ends up being a kind of great example of that because they're doing graffiti on Iapetus, right? Like it's this perfect planet or moon that they've discovered that they are able to, you know, radically alter with um, enormous human intentionality. And then even when you do that, there are huge conflicts that come up like you, like going back to the Sachs and debates. Yeah, of, yeah. Of, of, of the Mars trilogy, like you can't do that. It's a, it's a planet, it's a nature preserve. And it's like, what are you talking about? It's dead. Like it's a blank canvas to, to paint our humanity on. Right. Um, uh, and, and here it's this like incredibly unique planet. Again, talking about like science communication, like uh, the way that the planet is described. And then not only like the raw planet with the black the like the pure black and white cookie planet um but like the seashell genes that are that are creating these these amazing like structures on the planet like bioceramics yeah uh, is like so that cool it i this is one of those chapters i mean it's so interesting like part of what you know over and over again in this book we see that like the fashioning of of worlds like this and this is an interesting thing because like we're we're heading into Waram's home home turf right um and like his i'm kind of like i'm intrigued by the his association with like a sort of aesthetic um with an aesthetic you know i mean he clearly like in some ways right. is an aesthete right he like loves i mean maybe not an aesthete but you know whatever he lo he loves music he thinks about the right music to play at the right moment in time you know he imagines at some point here like what if what i really ne would need to like capture this scene is like a combination of like beethoven and Satie or something right, like that right. you know like he's he's always always coming back to proust in his mind like even <laughs> to make sense of of swan he's always coming back to proust um but but you know we see as we see everywhere in this in the depiction of the solar system here that like People are not just, um, you know, people are not just like uh, making lives on on new worlds. They're making them full of like beauty and intention. And in here in like the system around um, uh, Saturn, like they, the idea that you would have a view of this like extraordinary planet, like, and therefore you would be like, fashioning the little world in order to like partly around like what you could see partly right. around this like this incredibly sublime i just i i find that like yeah it's just it's amazing right. it, that is i think a really in, it's an interesting thing to think about right the idea of like the significance of the aesthetic both in that like making graffiti changing the surface of things but also in planning right you know planning toward exactly. like you know the extraordinary beauty of the place and and also just like seashell biomimicry to make the buildings i i would just like you right. know i would read a million pages of description of yeah. this i it like <laughs> and this is like again like that little like you know um for all for all of the ways in which like this is a book that's asking you to think hard about things and like et cetera et cetera also just like this just like 
fucking great beauty here. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, like like Hiroko's uh, tree houses. Exactly, and, exactly. Um. Uh, and and yes, like again, in a post scarcity world where you where city planning can happen not through because of a utilitarian reason that the river is there and we're going to have mm. the plant right there and everyone's going to all the workers are going to live on one side of the river right and all the uh on the nasty side of the river and all the management is exactly. going to live on the, the other side the of the pollution river. will all flow to the side where the workers are right yeah sacrifice <laughs> zones and yeah all that yeah. stuff in a in a world free of need of uh you know post-scarcity world you can actually just plan everything around how nice it will be yeah. <laughs> to live there and and how the views will appear to you when you turn around a corner or whatever like on my 249 it's um as the air it's like the fourth paragraph of the chapter as the air under the tent is always kept warm the interior architecture can be very open with saturn often left visible framed by gaps in ceilings and roofs um so it's like framed in gaps in ceilings yeah. and roofs, so that it's you know you're actually actively putting frames around nature in a way that's like you know art that is artistic right um that that is that is like uh, unique. So it's as if, as if the whole city were built um, to a billionaire specifications who wanted to have a perfect view of something. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. That kind of thing. The, right. the thing that only billionaires are, is only available to billionaires in our world. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and also then interestingly that like there both is this sort of, um, you know, deeply as the chapter points out, right. This like kind of deeply human yes. element, you know, the, the the perception of beauty is is the human perception of beauty right um but also like interestingly the way that the buildings work here right um uh uh like most bioceramic structures the beveled and layered shapes have been induced to produce scalloping fanning notching and other conchological features so that the buildings look like great seashells stacked one on the next sydney is often referred to because of its iconic opera house but in fact, the bulge now looks more like a Great Barrier Reef made of scallops layered and everywhere hold as if by tube worms to let in the view of Saturn overhead. So it's interesting that like the, that idea of the view, right, is there, but like the built environment itself is like, you know, not modeled on like human building, human building traditions, right? Um, which has a, so there's a really like, I don't know, something about the organicness of the forms is like really intriguing. Well, there is a kind of allowance for continuous agency and like nature capital n um while at the same time building an intentional planned community yeah there's some kind of harmony there about you know uh, and and which reflects a kind of gratitude of being able to live near saturn and have this gorgeous object in the sky unearthly um yet natural object um so so cool just, yeah. yeah. But it's funny, you know, um, on the, the last paragraph is um, it's graffiti on Iapetus. Um, later, it was declared a mistake and a scandal, a moral stupidity, even a crime, and in any case, disgusting. Um, blah, blah, blah. But don't, uh, for, but the truth is, we are here to inscribe ourselves on the universe, and it is not inappropriate to remind ourselves of this when blank slates are given us. All landscape art reminds us we live in a tabula rasa and must write on it. It is our world and its beauty is entirely inside our heads. Even today, people will sometimes go out over the horizon and scuff their initials in the dust. 
I think that's an interesting, there's an interesting question for me about voice here. Yeah. Um, especially in light of just me bringing up the Ann Sachs debates yeah. and um, where sort of Stan situates himself in this kind of notion, because mm -hmm. there is that tension between completely making the world totally, totally human. And then understanding that there's also something that's given that maybe is best left alone or allowed to be on its own in its own kind of autonomy or something like that. Right. 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 I, right. But although I am like very sympathetic with the idea that we're here to inscribe ourselves on the universe. I mean, that seems very, that's a very human urge to me. I think that that seems very, um, very right. If indeed we are the consciousness of the universe. Right. Right. I mean, and again, I mean, you know, like as we, you know, as we talked about then, I think like, you know, there's a version of this that's obviously like, you know, that you can just like, you know, too quickly, but whatever shorthand is like a very like colonialist thought, right? Yes, you for know? sure. Um, it's all ours. Um, uh, and then of course there's the version of it that that is more like, um, you know, having to contend with the fact that like, you know, because of features of what it is to be a human creature, like, you know, we, we have these perceptions of what we encounter and we, we produce, you know, we produce, we have views, right? right. We, we take a view. Right. Um, we like, um, you know, we organize the world if only in our minds in certain kinds of ways, you know, we experience it through that, like through these particular qualities of our humanness, which includes like this sort of like desire for making, you know, right. but I think it's that, um, I mean, two, two thoughts about that. Like one, it's kind of interesting to link this to, um, uh, you know, the next couple of chapters when, um, Swan and Waram go surfing, um, right. Which is, which is a way of that sort of like contact with the world. Um, like it's a kind of form of making, right. Um, but it's, but it's also ephemeral. I mean, it disappears, you know, like you know, unless you're talking about like whatever, like beaches that get fucked up because too many surfers go to them. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it, it, uh, it is a, a time, a time-based experience-based like contact with the world that, that, um, that doesn't alter, that doesn't alter it. Right. Mm -hmm. That like, you know, is peculiarly, you know, is peculiar, a peculiar human experience, but doesn't like change it. And we can also think about the, but you know, like, like what's the difference between going out there and like scratching, like, you know, scratching your initials or whatever it is and, and other kinds of change. Right. right. Um, you know, are, is that like a, a spectrum or a slippery slope or whatever? It's, it seems interesting to me that that chapter ends with even today, people will sometimes go out over mm -hmm. the horizon and scuff their initials in the dust, which I take it is like, on the one hand, like literal, like, you know, just crossing over to the other side of the moon. But on the other hand, like, being on the other side of the horizon. I mean, there's this kind of question there also about like where that sort of like possessiveness of the world goes in like, you know, is that an, is that a necessary part of all human relations and thus would be there on the other side of the horizon, right? Mm -hmm. You know, will we always be scratching our initials in the dust or, mm -hmm. or is it possible to have a different kind of relation um, to the world, to the planet? to what we call nature, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting too, and going back to looking back and going forward about the long postmodern, the long, the long, the late feudal, you can't go out over the horizon. The right. horizon's always there. 
it's you're you're situated in a central location to the rest of the universe and the horizon is always out there you can't go over the horizon um and like in where i'm at home the war i'm at home chapter he returns home to iapetus and has to re start a new pseudo iterative even though this is his home and he's familiar with everything there it's you know you can never go home again so like every time you go back home it's going to be a new place yeah and um on my 252 which is the second page of the chapter um he needed <laughs> to think about something else and bring himself into the present possibly he would see swan again somewhere and they would whistle then or not probably not this being the world so recent or not, the past was the past. The present was the only reality. So really it was necessary to start up a new pseudo-iterative pseudo that did not rely so fully on his habits from three or four lives back. He needed a new Iapetus with the memory of Swan properly encoded into it. So this is like Waram's constant struggle to live where he is, to be present in the moment at all times and not try to like impose the expectations of the past onto the present and right. not try to live in the present moment in such a way that you, you know, live too strongly toward a future that may not happen because it's not in your control. And I think this is, you know, I, I mean, I love, I love Waram a lot. And I, I, this set of thoughts, I think I said before, when we were talking about them before, I, it feels very like meaningful to me. Um, but uh, I think it, it's quite interesting here that part that like what's kind of messed up his pseudo iterative as his way of like being able to engage for the present is, is both trauma, right? Because, you know, he, um, you know, not only like um, that, not the experience itself, right? Including the experience of having to care for Swan, right? I mean, so there's that kind of like, um, you know, so the trauma is like lodged there somewhere inside your unconscious and like you just return to it and it's the repetitive, right? You know, right. it just like repeats again and again. And at the same time, what he's trying to contend with is his attraction to Swan, you know, which of course comes out of this experience that they've had together, um, but is something different, right? And that experience of like, you know, love or the thing that might be love is, you know, also something that draws you out, keeps you from being able to be locked in the present and instead puts you in a weird, like repetitive relation to like a possible future, you right. know, and that, so he, he's in this very sort of like strange and here he is then, as you said, like back home, but home that can't be the same to him, right? Like how do you rebuild daily life after having gone through the kind of experience that he's gone through, but also how do you rebuild it when you've met this like unaccountable, like amazing person who you are deeply attracted to, even though obviously this person is like so radically different from you that they would not even want to hear you talking about the set of thoughts that you're having, you know? And then the other thing I was thinking, I just thought, I just thought of this and I hadn't really occurred to me before like it is really interesting that he is so associated with like um just his like deep you know like his deep deep reading like i think he he's the person who makes the most literary references mm -hmm. yet like does swan make a literary reference i don't feel like swan's a reader yeah. um you know he's the re he and specifically he loves novels right um you know like 
just like you know and he and he loves like i mean he refers to huckleberry finn he but he refers obviously to proust um you know like uh he he loves you know like also like versions of like the realist novel you know um and he loves music and both of those things he has these like deep kind of like you know databases of like mm-hmm. literally right so mm-hmm. that you can re-listen to things or reread things or rehear things whenever he wants and like those that kind of relationship to those those particular sort of forms of art those kinds of cultural objects like you know often seen as one of escape right you like even if you're reading a novel even if a novel is always telling you that it's telling you about the present it's also you are also sort of like escaping the present as you read it the transport of like music you know that takes you out or like moves you into a different present by its very tempo right like that is not the tempo of like um you know daily life etc etc so it's interesting to think that those kinds of um but I don't think here we quite get that represented as those are like escapist habits of his or something like right. that, you know? But I think that's kind of an intriguing aspect of him that he's like, he has this like complex familial structure that as we learn f- from Swan's perspective is extremely boring. Yeah. But all, and and also like everybody is just like so nice and loving that it's almost as though you're living by yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah brilliant really good line i yeah. i like that about the like you know the long-held like um communal life um uh you know so he has these like deep regularities and yet he also is the person who thinks about like the necessity for regularity and he kind of thinks that through the relationship to these like kinds of aesthetic texts i don't know where i'm yeah. going with that but it's just no but i think that that's an interesting thing to yeah, think about when we talk about when we think about him like living in the present and trying to be present to the world, and yet at the same time, like literature and music and art are, if not escapist, they do transport you to somewhere else. But, mm-hmm. but, and I think one of the one of our one of the problems that we tend to have in our culture is that we think of culture as an escape or as something yeah. else, and that's because wage labor is at the center of our life and if we're not working and being productive then we're wasting time and he lives Juan Ram lives in a world in which there's no such thing as that it's you're spending your time you are investing your time in something and so even like reading a novel or listening to music that you've heard a million times before that's part of the fabric of, of your life. And part of that fabric is perhaps to like be magically transported into uh, the Mississippi river or something like that. Right. 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 Um, on a raft. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, thinking yeah. like what it would be like, you know, to, to like re read books say, yeah. if that wasn't either something you did because like you, um, were one of the very small number of people who gets paid to do things like that or it wasn't a thing that you did to like you know in your quote in your free time or a leisure right. activity like right. what if that was just like simply integrated into living you know yeah yeah read books or watch movies or listen to music or whatever it is that's not like well what know. if you were what if you were just you know um 
being a shepherd in the morning, raising plants in the <laughs> afternoon, criticizing at night. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Just like floating on a boat down the Thames, like yeah. um, stopping occasionally and working on beautiful projects. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are other ways to live. Yeah. There are other ways to live, but, you know, work is not going to get us there. No. Um, and yet it's going to take a lot of work for us to get there. No oh boy. <laughs> All right. Um, let's keep going. Lists eight is a list of uh, the moons of Saturn. Which oh, wait, is, but we should, we should mention. What do you want to say? What, just quickly that we're wrong. We do get a like really oh. nice depiction of um, right how, how negotiations go on um, in the Saturn league where everybody is chosen by lottery, which is. Yeah one of the few possibly good ideas for having like, um, you know, government. Right. Um, and, uh, but, but also it means that like people really like every conversation just drags on, drags on eternally. Um, but, but while Ram gets put in this position of, because he was working with Alex and they're kind of suspicious of Alex's project and they're suspicious of Mercury and like, they're pretty ready to be like, you know what, we should just make deals for ourselves and not worry about that alliance with them. And so while Ram is kind of in the position where he is being asked in his role, in his like role as, um, you know, representative to um, uh, find out things about what's going on um, on Mercury that kind of put potentially put him a little bit at odds with, with Swan, right? So there's mm -hmm. a kind of like, uh, just like a little bit of a discrepancy between like the relation, the personal relations that he's forming and what he's kind of being expected to do in his sort of like um, diplomatic role. Yeah. Um, and it's still a little bit, I mean, I, I think it's cloudy to me just because it's, again, the weirdness of this book is that there's this detective story and some kind of political not quite thrill. It's not a very thrilling political thriller, but there's a kind of political intrigue going on here about yeah. the deal that the outer planets have with getting sun delivered, sunlight delivered to them via Mercury and the Vulcanoids, right? right. Or like these, these asteroids that are close to the sun that then reflect sunlight, extra sunlight outwards which I don't think still has been like entirely laid out here, but no. Um, so spoiler alert on that in case you haven't, you should read this whole book before you listen to this podcast. Um, also, I think maybe knowing that thing about sunlight is not going to be a big spoiler. It's not a big spoiler because it's actually <laughs> also like super boring. <laughs> um, but, um, but like, so to kind of shore up the Mondragon project, but the issue here is something about like that Mercury is a kind of occupies a kind of central power position or brokerage position between a lot of those asteroids and those outer um, planets. And that the, the outer planets, I guess, think that they can get a better deal if they negotiate directly with right. the producers than they right. can through Mercury. And so there's this kind of like little bit of a political intrigue, kind of how, what's the best way to sort of fairly, perhaps democratically, if we want to call it that, you know, represent the interests of these, these asteroids, these Vulcanoids, whether it's direct, you know, through direct, the hyper-Vulcanization thing, right. um, directly to Saturn, or is it through Mercury and then to Saturn? And what's at stake there? Who cares? Who would benefit? Um, we don't really know. 
I, I don't think we really know, but mm -hmm. we do know that Waram is mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I'd like to go back to Mercury. <laughs> I like, I like Mercury. I like the people on Mercury. I like yeah. one particular person on Mercury too, but he's able to hide that. Yeah. From the people. And not that it really seems to matter all that much, although no. that's also a kind of an interesting wrinkle in the kind of lottery system of democratic representation is like, you do end up relying on people who are experts in their field and diplomats like Waram is, and he has like ulterior motives. Right. Although they're not like malicious ulterior motives, they're, they're selfish, but right. they're not necessarily ones that are gonna like, you know, they're not ones that are necessarily gonna affect um, life on Saturn that much, I guess. Right, right, right. Um, okay, not to, again, like not to go chapter by chapter, but I feel like we're going to end up doing that anyway. <laughs> well, we're, even, we're going chapter by chapter. <laughs> every three episodes I say, let's not go chapter by chapter because it slows us down. Let's be more synthetic. And then we end up going chapter by chapter. So it doesn't matter. We're just going to do this and we're resigned to our fate of uh, doing things this way. The cat is meowing into the microphone in a way that was audible to me. So <laughs> Louise is Louise's first audible uh, uh, appearance on the podcast. She just she just got up on the table, so she was like a little out of breath. So I think it made her purring extra loud. <laughs> so I've had this is just uh, cat news. Oh yeah, <laughs> cat news. So like last time I went to the cat pet store. Uh, to buy them their food, they didn't have the cat version of their food. They only had the dog version of their food. Mm -hmm. The cat version of their food, which they eat this raw, they eat raw meat for the listener. I know Hillary already knows this. They eat raw meat. They <laughs> eat the, the turducken formula of the raw meat. And the cat version comes in little pellets, like small, smallish bite-sized pellets for the cats. The dog version comes in like patties, mm -hmm. like hamburger patties. And I, and I think the portions are much bigger for the dog. Like, so basically using the food calculator they have on the website, I determined that about one patty for both cats per day. So I have to divide this patty into like six parts and then mash it up with my fingers. It's disgusting. But that ends up being more food than they eat typically when they eat the cat food sized food. Mm -hmm. So they're both gaining weight like really rapidly. <laughs> And in a way that like, it's very healthy. I think it's yeah. like healthy yeah. on them. One of them is a very skinny cat. And so she's putting on some pounds and uh, it looks great on her. Yeah. Well, I was going to say they're not, you know, they're, they're, ki they're kitties who it could use a little, they could have a, a few more ounces. They're small cats. One of them is a little, one of them is lethargic and loves to sleep. So she just has more weight on her than the neurotic cat. But even yeah. the neurotic cat is gaining, gaining weight uh, with this new, regime and uh, it looks are they enjoying it oh they love it. it's the same food so they 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 love it it's just a different size and i think they are enjoying it because there's the portions are bigger yeah yeah they're american cats they love big portions yes <laughs> to them uh more than enough is as good as a feast <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> okay, back to uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, 2312. The list's eight chapter is just a list of the moons of Saturn, and it's very cool to read. I don't have any political commentary about it necessarily. It's, cool. um, cool. it's just cool that we know this stuff, and oh I just God. boggles my mind that we as humans have figured out all this stuff. Yeah. Um, Extracts 9 is about quantum computing, right? Yep, yep. 
and, and honestly, although I tried to look up a bunch of stuff in here and think about it, a lot of it I don't understand, don't particularly understand. Um, uh, but you know, part of what I guess part of what we're learning is that, like, um, you know, um, uh, how how to think about sort of like the limitations on like what a computer of any kind can do, right? Mm. Or where you hit like points of indeterminacy. That seems to me to be the sort of um, or, or unsolvability, right? Um, uh, that seems to me to be the kind of like thematic piece here, you know? I think we need to get a guest on to describe, to explain to us things like decoherence and superposition and entanglement and shit like that. Right. Uh, yeah. Which I, I only know through reading Karen Barad, who is a physicist, but also writes like theory. So, you know, okay. um, uh, yeah, I mean, and part of the, um, it seems like, um, uh, it does, it does, seems like this is, you know, like we, toward the end of that chapter, we get like, um, mm -hmm. uh, we're starting to think about like, you know, is the human brain, are the, are human brains and computers like analogous, right? right? Do they work in the same way? If there's some kind of idea that, um, you know, aspects of the way that a quantum computer works, are like closer to um, the ways in which we're, you know, like have a kind of analogy to the way in which the human brain works. Um, uh, but how much that sort of like analogy kind of can hold up, right? How much you're actually looking at like things that resemble one another or whether it is the case that like you can understand something like consciousness at all on the model of a computer, right? Of mm -hmm. any kind. Right. Um, and that's where we sort of get at the um, we get at the very end of the chapter. Right. We get uh, if you program. And again, this is fragmentary, which is partly why like tracking through uh, tracking through it is like slightly difficult because we're getting references to things with other things being fully explained. Right. But if you program a purpose into a computer program, does that constitute its will? Right. And so this is always, I think, in the over and over again in the places in Stan's novels where the possibility of something like an artificial intelligence, right. Um, where that comes up, like, you know, we're always asked to think about the relationship to the programmer or to the programming. And here we're being asked to think about that. And also about the kind of analogizing of the computer to a mind anyway. Um, does it have free will if a programmer programmed its purpose? Is that programming any different from the way we are programmed by our genes and brains, right? And that kind of question there is, is like, not just is that different, right? But like, what do we mean when we talk about that as programming, you know? Um, so this is a question about like determination here. Mm -hmm. Is a programmed will a servile will? And there you get, there you get the sort of like link between like, um, the idea of, um, you know, is like programming thus like a form of power, right? A form of, and specifically a form of domination. Is human will a servile will? And is not the servile will the home and source of all feelings of defilement, infection, transgression, and rage? Could a quantum computer program itself? I mean, so like, you know, we, we here again have the idea of the servile will, but like what to do with that in this context, I think is like pretty radically uns unsettled, you know, and the and is this like, you know, we don't even know if this is just like a metaphoric way of talking when it comes to like computers. 
And we also don't know whether it's like, you know, essentially like a metaphoric way of talking when it comes to human beings too. Right. right? Well, yeah. Cause the, could a quantum computer program itself in light of the analogy that has been played out in the, pre, in the previous paragraph that begs the question for me, could a person program themselves? Right? right. Like in, in right. other words, can, is there, a, you know, do you have a will? Can you like work your way out of a set of things that feel like a program uh, if you are, you know, have the same routine, every, the habit, the pseudo iterative, uh, if you're falling in love with the wrong person all the time, if you can't stop drinking, if you can't stop not writing and get on with your writing career or academic career, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. No Could you, what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about either. I'm just uh, saying words. Um, but yeah, can, you know, yeah, does will exist? Like, and, and, and have we, you know, not just are the devices, you know, like are a quant- would a quantum computer have will in a way that a hammer doesn't, but does a hammer have will, you know, I mean, does a hammer, does a hammer have a purpose that it's sort of, you know, a little happy hammer <laughs> wants to hammer nails. I don't know what I'm talking about. Now I really don't know what I'm talking about. I was trying to do a Ziga Vertovian kind of like analogy. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah it turned bench. into a little, little Heidegger kind of thing there, but okay. you know, um, Just thank you for that warning. Cause I'm not clear. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and also this is like a question about history too. Right. So like, you know, what does it mean to like, what does it mean to ask questions about like will and free will? Like if you also are trying to like, if you also think that we are like um, creatures in and of our historical moments. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. But this, I mean, I think this is, here's another place where, Oh, I did want to say, I was going to say that the, on my page 298, um, so uh, we get a passage that starts, the two polarized particles decohere simultaneously, no matter the physical distance between them, meaning the information jump can exceed the speed of light, right? This is like whatever quantum theory stuff. The effect was confirmed by experiment in the late 20th century. Any device that uses this phenomenon to communicate messages is called an Ansible. And these devices have been constructed, but undesired decoherence has meant the maximum distance between Ansibles has been nine centimeters. And this only when both were cooled to one millionth of a K above absolute zero. Physical limitations strongly suggest further progress will be asymptotic at best. So like, this is both about like, you know, thinking a thing about like what's posited about um, the understanding about like um, uh, uh, whatever, like how particles work, right? Um, but this is also like, you know, the Ansible is like a device invented by Ursula Le Guin, which appears in, in novels, also in novels that are not Le Guin novels, but in The Dispossessed, um, uh, as, as, listen- as longtime listeners will remember, through me saying this, referring to it a thousand times, Shevek invents or comes up with a sort of theory of physics that is based um, on simultaneity, um, which he does not produce any kind of, so he's the, he's the anarchist, right? And he doesn't produce um, anything from this theory, but it creates the possibility for making a kind of communication device in which there would be no time lag over like extraordinary distance. 
Um, and therefore, rather than producing something in which he like, rather than producing something like faster than like travel in which people are like physically able to come close together, he produces the possibility for communication across distant worlds. Um, although it matters also that he doesn't like make the device himself. Like he, he has, he's kind of like has the sort of like theoretical possibility for it. And that device is called the Ansible and it appears in other Le Guin novels. And the thing that it promises is this possibility um, of a kind of, of, of a coherence, right? It promises the possibility of even over extraordinary distance and without like, um, uh, without the need for, um, uh, you know, like one, you know, one culture to come in and like dominate another culture necessarily, nonetheless, like information can be shared, communication can take place, et cetera, et cetera, right, without being sort of physically present. So that idea of this kind of like simultaneity is like, in some ways, a kind of, um, you know, kind of like a riff on faster than light travel, but also that like transforms the idea of faster than light travel, because the point is not um, you know, to be able to get your ship there. The point is to be able to talk. The point is to be right. able to talk to other people. Um, right. And then here we get the idea, we get this kind of like play from the idea of decoherence that that sort of like simultaneity is always going to like break down. Or in mm. fact, like you can have the Ansible, but it's going to have to only mm. be, it's going to have to be like at, you know, a millionth mm -hmm. of a K above absolute zero and can only be nine centimeters away from the other Ansible, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is like an interesting like, um, you know, here we have the kind of like um, the utopianism here. If there's utopianism here, it's not in the technology, right? Right. Um, and it's not really in the, it's not in the dispossessed either, right? In right. some ways, like the Ansible is actually like just, you know, like that's not what matters. That's not what matters right. at all, right? Um, in, in that novel. Um, but anyway, that's like the kind of play there. Yeah, that's, yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. No, it is, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I knew I knew where the Ansible was from, but I forgot, and then I didn't look it up, and so I knew you would know Thank and explain you. it. I did know. <laughs> One of the few things I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> In my small um, storehouse of mental facts. There's... Yeah, we keep this is why we keep her around, uh, folks. <laughs> For the <laughs> Ursula Le Guin. Uh, I've read three novel. books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's two more than me. Um, exactly. So, exactly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I like that. It's a nod to like the kind of like drawing Le Guin into this universe in a way. Yeah. In, but also in a way that is a rebuttal, but a kind of um, upping the ante in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. yeah. Like, yeah. Um, it's cool. So Waram and Swan and Jeanette, um, they, what do they do? They go out and they're looking, oh, they go, oh yeah. So Swan and Jeanette arrive in the Saturn system to look for this ship that's floating in the gases right. of Saturn's atmosphere, which probably mm -hmm. sent out the signal that initiated the attack on Terminator. Um, and we get, um, a lot of great stuff about like perspective and size. Yeah. Um, clouds. Clouds. Fantastic shit about clouds. Um, these, this crazy, again, crazy technology that has these ships like hiding. They're kind of like pirate vessels in a certain way. Um, and of course, um, Jeanette appears as an otter with an abalone shell uh, at one point. 
um, adorable. (laughs) (laughs) But also the, the, the relationship between Ram and Swan um, develops too, because she's just such an asshole. And he's like, I can't believe I'm in love with this person. I, I refuse to be in love with this person. And he's like, ah, it's too late. I love this person. She's immediately like, oh, what can we go flying here? And he's like, no, this is like very dangerous. And she's like, oh, come on, people obviously do it all the time. <laughs> he's like, I'm sure they do. Big whoop. I'm not going. <laughs> um, and um, let's see. I don't know how much I have to say about this particular chapter because it is, it, it, it resumes the investigation. Yes. Right. Uh, thread a little mm-hmm. bit and also develops their, um, their relationship. Um, and, but he also, it's funny on two, on my 271, the last page of the chapter, um, Swan asks Waram if he wants to come to earth with her uh, he's like, I can, I have to go down there anyway. Um, I can meet you there. We can work together. She seemed not to suspect him of any possibility of harm, which was nice, even encouraging, but unfortunately incorrect. Like there's a kind of sense of that. He wants to be the bad boy a little bit. Like there's no, if there's no danger there, then there's no, like the possibility of love isn't necessarily there. Like you're not putting anything at risk type of thing. That's what I interpreted from it. But also there's the sense of there's no danger in that. Like he is a diplomat who is working on, you know, negotiating this thing, which, you know, may have an impact on like her, right. Not really her directly, but like her sensibilities at the very least. So anyway, I thought that was kind of fun and interesting. Yeah. And I, I love the, you know, his next move is to be like, Oh, you, you know, I can show you around and you might like, you might like to go, you know, do this like, crazy surfing thing with me and I can introduce you to my crush. Right. <laughs> and she was surprised by this. He could see he swallowed again, tried to look bland under her gaze. <laughs> can picture it very clearly. Just saying a thing. I mean, we could just do a thing, you know, just like, whatever. Like by, they're people, they're people I know. My, they, they like happen to be my family. Like exactly. it's no big deal. Yeah. Not, not, you know, it's nothing. And then, you know, she says yes, which is nice. Like, All right. Um, and um, then we get we get an extremely uh, funny moment at the beginning of um, introducing Swan to the crash that it involves them arguing about who was who was the wife when. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is nice. I like that. Or like that part. Um, and you know they they hang out and they have like a nice um, dinner or whatever. And Moram is like um, blushing a little bit. And that ends with maybe on Saturn, Swan thought this was a rousing party. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go surfing. They go surfing. Um, You know, nothing to say about that, except it's like super cool, uh, of course. And, um, and, but she uh, that it that also, Rom, she thinks well, Rom looks like the dancing hippos in Fantasia. Um, it, 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 you know, where there's a wave, there's surfing is basically the moral of the story. And that is, you know, it, it fits right in with, with our discussion and, and this concept of debate or or, of contingency and pattern, um, and inscribing oneself on the universe. And, you know, um, I think that, that, you know, surfing is a beautiful metaphor 
Um, and it's also a beautiful activity that I will never do, Yeah. but, um, <laughs> but it's certainly fun to watch and imagine, right. Um, that we have this capability that human beings invented this thing and that it is a product of gravity in a way, like it's a kind of, I want to say, it, I don't, I, I, the only thing I can think of, it's the wrong word. It's a, it's a waste product of gravity. It's not waste. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's like the yeah. hard, uh, it's a, it's excessive to right gravity. It's not mm -hmm. essential that we do this, but we no. do it and no. it's awesome and cool. And there should be more opportunities to do that kind of thing. Yeah. And it has, it's totally out of our control, but it's also completely in our control because it's again, like it's a byproduct of gravity. It happens to be a feature of the fucking universe that we live in. <laughs> and we get to enjoy it in this specific way. Um, and it even happens not just in the water, but in ice chunks off of the fucking surface of Saturn or some shit. I don't know. Yeah, just truly, truly, truly wild. And also, the, you know, it's just another great kind of like, you know, the chapter itself is playful. And then it's this image of like play and like right. play is, yeah. is part of what humans are. And even though it doesn't seem like Wilram has the best time, right. you know, like he... Um, he also does it. And Swan, of course, has an incredibly good time because this is like exactly the kind of thing that she likes to do. And also I love the kind of like, you know, at the end she's like, oh, that's just what I needed. And that kind of care about like how good it can be to just like expend a lot of energy, right? Or absorb yourself in something joyous. Right, yeah. Momentary, like, yeah. I totally like foreign, totally foreign to me. I know, um, exactly. When does that happen in my life? <laughs> I got to join a rec league or something, pickleball or- Oh, uh, pickleball. Yeah. I don't even know what pickleball is. Neither, neither do I. It just, never mind. I'll tell you late. I'll tell you off, off the air about yeah, pickleball. Oh, um, right. It has nothing to do with me. Um, list nine is what? Like um, a, a list of technological advances. Again, yep. like. Um, around. You know, Rock ever, Rock ever increasing yeah. ability to propel ourselves through space. Now, Kieran and Lakshmi, this chapter is great. I read it last night after watching a film called Cutter's Way. Have you ever seen Cutter's Way? Uh-uh, no, never even you heard You have it. to watch cutter's way it's on the criterion channel so if you're sharing my if you have my login use it if you like many of the people listening here have my login <laughs> look i know one person listening you have my login to the criterion channel cutter's it's, way it's going out it's leaving at the end of the month on, okay. uh, it stars john hurd and jeff bridges john hurd okay. in one of the great performances um, but it's a film, it's a neo-noir, right? And it's set in like Santa Barbara and it's classic neo-noir as like, and this is what I'm getting at in this chapter because this chapter is bringing out a lot of that detective story and starting mm -hmm. to, and, and having just watched a neo-noir and then read this, it felt a lot more like the noirish aspect, which is not a noirish book. Like this is yeah, something yeah. that's so interesting about this book is that there is this political intrigue. There is this plot about where this town on Venus is going to be built. And there are different people with different stakes in which where that town will be located. And of course, even though we live in a post-scarcity, like ostensibly, basically post-capitalist society, there are still these powers at play working on things. And 
you know, it, uh, Cutter's Way is not like, is a little bit like Chinatown. I mean, it's like any noir. There's a big powerful guy. He did something criminal. He's going to get away with it. And he sort of, you know, controls the town or whatever. Um, uh, it's not, but it's also a really unique noir because it's not necessarily about that. It's about the characters and mm. their, how they play out their backstories and, um, there's a lot of ambivalence and ambiguity in it. And I've seen it twice now so far, and it's, it gets more complicated the more you watch it. It's really I'm, defi cool. I'm definitely going to watch it. It's definitely incredible. It. It's incredible. Um, 1981. Um, and I don't know the director's other work at all anyway. So, um, but having just watched that and then read this chapter, those elements came out a lot more. Kieran as this, character this kind of dispossessed you know underclass character is drawn into this intrigue about where this town is going to be built on venus and he's he himself is only putting it together out of necessity out of a kind of like it's almost a hobby because he doesn't know who's using him for what he right. doesn't speak any of the languages that are being spoken around him so it's also in a certain way, like sussing out the plot that he's involved in is also for him a kind of language game mm -hmm. of like learning the language, not only of like the, the languages that are being spoken, but the language of power that's being spoken on Venus and who's speaking it and who controls those languages or who, how, the, how that language is determined. Um, and the way that this, this part of the novel, this plot of the novel mirrors those types of noirish detective stories is you know it's there but it makes this novel really again like really weird and unexpected mm -hmm. because it's not a noir novel um and yet those elements are still kind of there beneath the surface like in that in just in the way that that kieran is navigating these towns and spaces and there is a kind of you can see a kind of Blade Runner-ish quality to these cities. Yeah. There's an under, there's an underclass, there's an underworld, um, an underground people. He's learning things through whispers and murmurings in bars yep. that are, and he's learning them surreptitiously through his like glasses that are imperfect. And it's just so, I think this chapter is so fascinating and I was really it was lucky that I read it reread it at the time that I did at right after watching this noir which kind of like is one of those you know because a noir is just a puzzle and and, and nothing f the pieces don't fit properly and everything's at a diagonal and stuff and and here having just had that experience and then reading this like th those kind of aspects really like came out a lot stronger this time. So that's that's really interesting. I think um, that just that describes this chapter so well. And I was thinking. So one thing then we could think about is that the. Um, so we know in some ways, or at least I think we just like make a readerly assumption that there must be connections between what we see happening on Venus, right? And which at first just just seems like it's a real like it's like a power struggle on venus right um possibly between excuse me possibly between shukra and lakshmi but, but we really kind of don't know that um but there must be connections between it and what it is that that inspector Jeanette is trying to figure out um you know um and thus there must also be some kind of connection to the whole question of these like cubes walking around in um embodied embodied cubes right um, 
but those are also, I'm just thinking from what you're saying about the nourishness of this, like, um, those, those, those various layers of sort of like mystery or uncertainty or puzzles that seem to need to be solved also like exist in somewhat kind of different modes, right? Because like the little inspector who's like figuring things out and, you know, I mean, is this very sort of like classic detective figure, right? Uh, of the Dupin sort, mm-hmm. you know, um, who's able to hold a lot um, uh, in Jeanette's, Jeanette is able to hold a lot in Jeanette's head and like, um, you know, create a kind of map, right? Does this kind of like uh, map maps through the data, you know, and like, you know, thinks about like where it is that power is cohering or isn't cohering, you know, so there's this sort of like possibility for, um, yeah, like systemic understanding. And then Kieran, you know, who um, it, it, it seems like, that people on Venus sort of perceive Kieran as having been sent by Swan in already in the capacity of some kind of like, you know, a spy or an infiltrator of some kind, even though we know like that's definitely, Swan was just kind of like, I, well, where am I going to bring this person where right. they will be safe and get a job? Oh, I know people on Venus. That would be perfect. There are a lot of people who work on Venus, you know, like, so oddly, and I, you know, is just like cast into this relation to these structures of power that it's very, that is completely shadowy. Yeah, I think that the sort of like reference to Blade Runner makes a lot of sense, not only because of like him seeing like the scrolling characters and the neon signs everywhere, um, but also because we have this sense of like, there are two lives going on at once. Um, And yeah, that kind of like, and here, if we think, okay, if we follow what you were saying, that this is in this kind of like noir mode, like, well, this is the kind of, you know, it seems like part of how noir works is like, well, we always know that there's somebody who's really power. I mean, we know that there's just like congealed power. Right. Um, and we probably know that in one way or another, that's at the back of like the mystery. Right. But like knowing that just like doesn't matter. It doesn't allow right. you to make a difference, right? Right. It doesn't, the detective in, the de- the noir detective like um, can, you know, make all the connections he wants, but like that doesn't change anything. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The, the real story is about the, 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 the noir detective discovering the truth, but then it having no impact on right. the outcome of anything. Right. It's the, and mul- then, it's the Maltese and, Falcon, right? It's just a piece ex- of junk. Right. Yeah. And then, and then also mm-hmm. what's also fun about it is that the detective discovers the truth. The reader still has no fucking idea yeah, what's yes, going on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and nothing has changed if sec- except probably somebody has died. And like this, the detective is even sadder than he was when he started. Yeah. Yeah. The book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so it's interesting. So then also like it, you know, in that, in this kind of account of noir, like it fits both with that idea of like, you know, the long, the, uh, the long feudalism, right. right. You know, um, right. because like, yeah, in the end, you know, yeah, it turns out like the, the, the Lord was the one with all the power, you yep. know, <laughs> yep, exactly. But it also, it also fits with like, unlike if, if Jeanette is able to sort of inhabit the data, put it together, like make it make sense, begin to make a, you know, make the story out of it, come to conclusions out of it. Like, you know, Kieran's struggle to like come to conclusion 
is much more like he's very clearly in a world that he can't produce a, right. a map of, you know? Right. Um, and he just keeps like the, the, you know, toward the end of this chapter, maybe it is the end of the chapter. He goes back to the place where he's been like living with this work crew. Right. Um, and they're just gone. And, and, and so he did actually all, there was this way in which sort of like haphazardly um, and largely unintentionally, he formed like this bond with this group of people and they're right. the people he knew and they go out to the, like, you know, they go to the bar together and like he was communicating with them and then they're gone and there's a new group of people there and he's like, okay, well, so now I'm going to have to, so he's kind of like, you know, here we get like the, a little bit of that, like anime or just disorientation mm -hmm. like oh yeah nobody stays around because like everybody is being moved around by you know by larger forces that seem impossible to understand right right and then what do you do and how do you situate yourself how do you respond to that you know like um he's given the you know he's uh well i'm not going to make any friends ever again then and um uh it was going to keep happening he could see you could only give yourself so many times the lodge master with whom he had become friendly saw that in him don't think that way or you cut yourself off you can give yourself as many times as there are chances to give it's not something that runs out it hurts too much when people go attachment is fruitless release and move on your quo is yourself it's like you just said to attach myself to people and now you're saying not to attach myself to people so you know, where, what do you do? What do you do in this situation, in this kind of like hyper modern situation, essentially, where you are completely in, unmoored from people? Do you constantly seek a new harbor or do you, you know, shut yourself off into like your, your individual, um, you know, your individuality or whatever, um, and, and cut yourself off from others? And Kieran thinks uh, your your place is your place, a lodge keeper's mm -hmm. philosophy. But every building on Venus was a lodge, or every building in the solar system, and that's this interesting kind of like, you know, when we see early on when we see Swan and Waram traveling around, um, they go, you know, they catch a ride on an asteroid in a terrarium or whatever, and you know, there's a Mercury house there that you can stay in, or you can stay like in a lodge and you can, you do some work in exchange for staying there. You know, like there's this kind of like, there's this freedom, freedom of movement. Right. Right. Um, but then Kieran's experience is like, um, that everywhere is a lodge is like, you know, um, uh, is not a freedom, but actually like a, this just sort of like strange trap where you just keep, wherever you go, you keep coming to a place where it will be unstable, where you won't really know what's going on, where as soon as you begin to find your way, you are going to be like kind of cast out. Yeah. Permanent, permanent alienation, permanent alienation. Um, an iterative alienation. And that sense that like you have to re, you know, that burden of, you know, there's, it's again, the double-edged sword of like, you get to create your own identity, but you also have to create your own identity. You know, the right. burden, the burden of being yourself is on you and you can't rely on the world to, or you, you can't rely on the world to do it for you because it will do it for you in a way that you won't like. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I, that, that makes me think like, um, I didn't have this thought before, but when you were talking about this chapter, I thought, oh, so like there's a way in which, so the end of this section that we read for today is quantum walk one, which right. seems to be, um, seems to be the perspective of, of a cube, of a cube person. Yes. Um, uh, 
and I think is, is quite, inter- I think these sections are really interesting and creepy and whatever, but I was, uh, and, and kind of, and like moving and frightening. Um, uh, but as you were talking, I was thinking like, oh, so, I mean, there is a real way in which Kieran, well, the cube here, if the, if we're in cube perspective, which I think we are, is radical, is really radically disoriented and more disoriented maybe than Kieran is. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, like there's a real analogy between like Kieran's like navigating, you know, what, what first he has like a worse translation device and then he gets the better translation device, but the better translation device also like, you know, is totally bombarding you with information. Right. Um, you know, as you were saying, like he can only put things together through like sort of fragments, like how he finds a relation to the whole um, and then the things that like give him a sense of like comfort or stability, like just get like taken away really quickly, you know? Um, so there is a kind of, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not like he, um, it's not precisely the same as like the cube person, but I think there is a kind of like link there, you know, these, these figures who are not able to, I mean, like Swan, you know, Swan and Raram both are are actually people who have quite complicated sort of like what we would call identities, you know, Mm -hmm. and who have been able to swan dramatically and constantly, you know, new, like altering personality, altering body, all of those kinds of things. But Waram too, you know, was the wife at some point and now identifies like as, you know, as a man if, and also an androgen, right? So, you know, for, for them, like, you know, there seems to be a possibility to like live in the space where there's this kind of like can be play around the con- the continuity of personality where you can be transformative. Um, but for like Kieran um, and then, and then for the cube, like the, the stakes are clearly quite different. I mean, they, they're, they seem to be vulnerable or, mm-hmm. you know, possibly like radically vulnerable. And in, in Kieran's case also like, you know, I mean, in both cases, actually, like potentially like able to be harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that their disorientation is not like a liberation um, at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like what you say a lot in terms of their, the anxiety with which they're, they're subject to being in this world. I do agree. I think Kieran probably it has less anxiety than the cube does because simply because he's around other human beings. And the cube released onto the street is not around other cubes. It's around other, it's around human beings. Right. And, and so if there's a kind of, there is only an analogy there, not, they're not the same thing resolutely. And I think the, the, the prior chapter, the extracts 10 is really interesting because it's about um, systems and complexity and organization and things getting bigger and, and organizations kind of mushrooming out and becoming more complex, more organized, perhaps more difficult to understand such that like you start with some proteins and they get together and they form a cell and those cells form a tissue and those tissues form an organism and those organisms start evolving. We become human beings conscious of ourselves. And then those human beings join together in groups of human beings and uh, you know, can conquer the whole solar system. And then they actually produce a new consciousness potentially in the form of a cube. And then now what is it like substantively different enough from a human being to be an inhuman thing, or is it still a subject to the programming of a human being? Um, and therefore is it, is it necessarily kind of like human or an artifact of humanity or something like that? And here, 
there's, you know, we're, we're, we're meant to be seeing the world of Venus through the mind of a cube, essentially on this quantum walk, doing what passes for cognition, what we would probably call calculation or something like that, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. computation rather than cognition. And there's, and it's, it's not without a sense of humor. Don't mention chess, um, you know, right. And so that right, there's right. that base, that base programming language taught to these things about chess, about predicting what the other person is going to, about paranoiac knowledge, predicting what the other, what the opponent is going to do, reacting to that, um, planning moves in, in response to that, learning from past mistakes. Um, but that chess is always at the center right, right. of the, of the right, computer right. mind is very hilarious. Um, and also that all the kinds of things that human beings, the limitations on human minds um, seem replicated in the quantum, in the, in the cube, right? Um, either or uh, double, double, double bind, um, problems of prediction, problems of, um, uh, uh, yeah, problems of prediction, problems of knowing what to do when or how to respond um, uh, to, to different stimuli. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really weird and creepy and also kind of funny because of the chess thing. Like there at the end, it seems like uh, the cube is, um, you know, being tracked by or like followed by a human being who right. maybe grabs them and said, and tries to kind of reroute them, in, you know, re reboot their kind of programming, asking if they want to play chess or it's, it's unclear if the human is asking the cube, if, if, I think that a human is asking the cube if it wants to play chess. Um, I think, or maybe yeah, I, I think I, it's I think it's supposed to be a code, right? Right. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like a a a brain like a, a like a code word or a, a trigger word from like a brainwash thing. Like if I say you know if I say Manchurian Candidate to you, you're going to go right, right, try to assassinate the president of Bolivia or something. I mean, I read it as. Um, somebody seizes the cube by the arm right. um, and says, do you want to play chess? And the cube thinks it should, there's, they were supposed to have said, would you like to? Uh, so I think it's supposed to be like the, a pass, a password. Right. right? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and, and so, uh, so then, then the cube can't, you know, it's like, okay, I was supposed to hear one thing. I didn't hear that thing. Right. How to respond in that situation. Hey, I'm sorry. Sorry. Following. Would you like to play chess? stop, look, cheeks red, sweat on forehead, right. gleaming, human, all too human. And the twist of it, I mean, the funny part about it is, right, like, um, you know, as as we hear on the page before, humans talking to other humans, perpetually they pass the, the Turing right. test. It isn't very hard to do. It isn't right. very hard to do, right? But then, like, here, here the thing is, like, you know, the, the, you know, the cube's problem is making sure that, in fact, this is, you know, the human that they're supposed to be going with and it is becomes hard to recognize them as a human because they all because like they make this like minor the mind the thing that they're supposed to be able to say that like seals in that this is the right person is not what they say and it's a, such a like minor problem right yeah right and you might think like well a human would overlook that and know that that person was trying to give you the password right but then of course like if you fuck up a password obviously you're like you know probably not the person anyway whatever you're locked out yeah no that yeah. Th thank that that clears things up that's really helpful uh and and really funny and interesting and cool yeah sorry oh no no i just i think it's an interesting like because i was thinking about like 
I mean, this is, I mean, we are seeing what I think are cognitive processes, like what it reads as, I mean, and this reminds me a bit of like, um, of Red Moon, right? Where you kind of, where you do see the sort of like the thought patterns, right? Of the, of the quantum computer. Um, but like here, you know, we're, what we're getting is like all of these bits of perception, you know, like, um, that then slide into like kind of reservoirs of like factual knowledge, you know, so we're, we're seeing like associative chains. Um, so there is a way in which this, it feels like if you didn't have the kind of context, you could be just reading this as a person who, for whatever reason, is somewhat impeded from being able to put things. So it could be that they were like, you know, somebody who was like fevered or mm -hmm. like high or whatever it is. They're not able to put things together in their, um, in the environment in like a fully coherent way. Right. Instead, you know, like they keep like, like losing track or making an observation. They're just like this kind of disorientation. Um, so there is this funny way in which it both feels like, um, we're reading something from a very strange mind, but the strangeness of the mind doesn't necessarily feel like not a human mind. Like, you know, even, yeah. even though it seems like this is indeed like a cube that we're getting. Right. 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 And like quantum walk ends up having a double meaning, I think, because I think it has a technical computational meaning, but now, or technical meaning in quantum computer science, whatever it's thought. And then also... <laughs> But here it's like literally a computer walking around. Yeah, walking around. Yeah. And I think that going back again, back to the Kieran and Lakshmi chapter, there's a moment where he's in the he's in a bar with his glasses on, listening to voices. There's a three lines that are in italics. He's overhearing this. They're too beautiful. It's a mistake. Lakshmi wanted them that way. She who must not be named. So I think that's a reference to cubes yeah. and the way that Lakshmi is sort of somehow trying to use them to influence, again, like the height of the ocean in Venus, because that's where the harbor town will end up being. And right. again, who knows what the what's at stake there, but um, but something pride or power or whatever, but, um, well, and so it is, cool. it is interesting. And I feel like this, you know, coming out of your sort of ob observation about that chapter is like this kind of noir scene, like that, that information, you know, like he's both, tr he can put that information together a little bit, but like, he doesn't know that there are cubes walking around, you exactly. know, um, and I feel like fairly certain that like the first time I read this book, I probably didn't put that together when I, it's only like on this like second read that I'm like, oh, cubes are important and they right. have something to do with Venus. And that's right, why I know right, that this right. is going to happen. You know what I mean? So like what gets you oriented that makes information something other than just like random bits and pieces or like, how do you connect the stuff that like, you know, you remember or the, you know, to what you're actually like seeing in the world you know and that's like difficult for him too with the glass with the translating glasses on you yeah. know like yeah yeah just the overwhelming amount of information and then how yeah exactly like how to sort it and how to find patterns within it um it's cool i mean i think yeah it's just a very weird novel in terms of genre because of these all these different things that are going on like the detective story that seems to be 
you, that you would want to be the main narrative thrust if you were just sort of an average reader or something right. the, and then with the noir, you know, coloration there. Um, but then again, it's, I mean, noir, noir too is about human relationships and not only not knowing how power relations work, but knowing, you know, the detective knowing themselves um, yeah. and how they're going to respond to any given thing. Cause they're always drawn into some kind of romance as well. That right, is right. deeply connected to the, to the overall plot. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to think, think those two things next to each other. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cool. This was a cool section. I felt like when we were um, deciding how far to go, I thought, well, I don't know whether this really coheres or not, but now I feel like, oh, look, it does cohere. I mean, I was, th- yeah, I was thinking about going to the quantum walk thing too, because it seems like that's a major, that's the first time we see the quantum walk thing. And that's a major kind of, I mean, that's important. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, we talked for two hours again. Oh, good job. Good job us. <laughs> good thing is you know- that we- made an effort to shorten things up and like make things more efficient. Honestly, Matt, it flew by. And I, of course. I don't know that it does for the people who listen to this, but can't imagine who listens or why, but no, me neither. But my experience of it was very positive. So was mine. <laughs> so was mine. That's why we do it. You know, exactly. Yeah. Well, whatever. That's why we do it. It's all um, about us. Okay. So next time we'll read more. Yeah, we will. Good we plan. Will. And, cool. um, <laughs> uh hopefully we'll uh have a new one soon i think we took a we had we had sorry for the delay because we had just uh well hillary especially had a lot going on yeah, and yeah. um you know yeah learning, can't do the show learning, without her i'm learning how to be among people again that's right um so you can thank you for listening uh, yes, again you can uh, you know email us at maroon.mars at gmail and you can podcast tweet us you can tweet us at podcast on mars uh, <laughs> you can podcast us you can tweet us <laughs> uh i recently had a viral tweet you did i know it had 20 Wild. it ended up with like 2400 likes who knew who knew that a joke about grad school is so key to people's happiness on Twitter. It had about 2,400 likes. There are about 2,400 people in graduate school on Twitter by my calculation. <laughs> uh, people in graduate school love being on Twitter and they love complaining about graduate school on Twitter. And it was analogizing Twitter to graduate school, which- Yeah. It was really, a, it was a sweet spot. It was a- Hit a vein. Spot. Um, it hit a vein. Did you, have, have you gotten anything out of that? Uh, no, I got more followers. Well, okay. Yeah. Um, and then I got, uh, you know, when you get a viral tweet like that, you're supposed to immediately tweet underneath that, you know, directions to either your podcast or your Etsy right. store or your OnlyFans page. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have an OnlyFans page yet. Yet. But I do have a podcast <laughs> that you're listening to. What? And so I tweeted that. And then a guy, some asshole tweeted in response to that you know twitter is terrible by the way follow my podcast oof like well this is a generic thing that you do on twitter that's also fuck off guy oh my god (laughs) i love how i don't know i don't know i think i don't know it's very funny it's very funny um but no there were love to be mean you know they love to be mean Oh my God. Ugh, Particularly gross. on Twitter. 
Yeah, I know. That's why we should all be off of it. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm endeavoring to get off. Anyway, let's endeavor to get off of this podcast. Oh, okay. All right. Talking. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>